My name is Mark Fallick, and I'm the chairman of the AUA's Legislative Affairs Committee. I have a uh, great panel with me tonight. You'll hear from them shortly, but uh, we're going to have Dr. Robert Bass to talk about the AUA's federal legislative priorities and also why and how uh, to get involved in advocacy efforts with the AUA. So um, we're going to start with uh, Dr. Bass, if you can just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about how you first got involved or why you got involved in advocacy. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Robert Bass. I'm the current AUA Gallagher Scholar. I'm in private practice uh, in the Nashville area. Um, I've been involved in the advocacy efforts of the AUA, the AACU, and various other organizations dating back about 12 years ago. I actually got started as a chief resident where I was invited um, by the AUA staff to attend the uh, JAC meeting, and I've been involved ever since then. And uh, Josh and Cordicos, if you guys can fill us in on your roles, please. I'm uh, Josh Webster. I'm with the AUA's Washington, D.C. office. I've been at the AUA um, for about eight years now, uh, so I've had the opportunity to work with both Drs. Bass and Dr. Fallick uh, for some time. Before that, uh, I got my start working for Congressman John Micah, who represented my home district uh, in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, um, and you know, have always had sort of a love and drive for politics and the way that policy comes together. And, uh, you know, that love and drive has brought me here to the AUA. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Quadrica Striscoll, feel free to call me Q. I've been with the AUA now for about three years. I'm also in the Washington, D.C. office. Uh, before the AUA, I worked on the Hill for a, a um, the senior center at that particular time. I also helped advocacy organizations, uh, one dealing with prostate cancer. Uh, so I've been in the health space for about uh, a total of eight years, in the government relations space for about a total of 12 years. And with regards to the AUA, I cover the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate uh, Finance Committee. Great. So you can see that we have a uh, panel that's got a quite a bit of experience in Washington, D.C. and in advocacy work. And um, we're going to go through how the AUA comes to its legislative priorities and then what those priorities currently are and how we're addressing uh, issues that are important to urologists and their patients. Why don't we talk about why the AUA has federal advocacy priorities and, and how we come to those priorities. So uh, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that uh, these are not created in a vacuum. These are not created by just the leadership at the AUA. These are created by members of the AUA. And there's a process as how, how the legislative priorities are, are decided upon. And summarize this, basically what happens is that uh, there are surveys that are sent out to AUA members about what are important legislative issues to them. Uh, so if you get those AUA surveys, don't ignore them. These are your chance to express how you want the AUA to address some of the things that are important for you, for your practice, for your patients. And this survey is sent out uh, biannually. Uh, the Legislative Affairs Committee meets twice a year at least as well and addresses how these priorities uh, should be uh, focused on and comes comes up with a list of legislative priorities for the AUA. Uh, these are federal legislative priorities. There's a whole separate state advocacy committee that addresses state issues, and there'll be another webinar later on uh, at a later date uh, looking specifically at state legislative advocacy work. But from a federal standpoint, the Legislative Affairs Committee comes up with the list. That list is then presented to the AUA's Public Policy Council, 
uh, and then passed on to the AUA board where it gets officially approved. And you can find the legislative priority list on the AUA's website, uh, but we're gonna go through the issues today and, and group them in terms of categories of, of how they affect uh, urologists, how they affect practices and how, how they affect patient care. So uh, if anyone else has any other uh, comments on this process from the panel. Just uh, as, a, as a quick uh, update for those that are listening, uh, Dr. Fallick, the, the, the survey itself, uh, the most recent one, will be going out towards the end of August. We're going to pair it actually with the annual urology advocacy summit that we're holding uh, virtually. Uh, usually we do that meeting in March. You'll hear more details on that as we get to it. Uh, but due to, well, everything that's happened, uh, we're holding it uh, virtually later at the end of August, start of September. And so for those that previously checked their emails looking for AUA surveys, as I'm sure everyone that's listening does, that survey will be going out uh, around that time frame. Please be on the lookout for it. That is uh, your opportunity as an AUA member to really help dictate where the AUA focuses its its priorities and, and policy. Thanks, Josh. I think that's a, a good point. Josh mentioned the AUA summit, which we're going to be talking about uh, uh, some more towards uh, later on in the talk, but the Advocacy Summit, which takes, typically takes place in Washington, D.C. and around March each year uh, due to the COVID-19 situation was postponed and we were hoping to get there at the end of August, but uh, given the, the current situation, uh, decided to make it a, a virtual meeting. Uh, the good news is that that means that a lot of urologists who wouldn't have been able to travel to Washington to participate are going to be able to participate in parts or all of the conference. Uh, most of it's going to be taking place in the evening online. Uh, there is one day of Advocacy uh, Hill uh, contacts during the day as well. So uh, we'll touch on that a little bit more later in the talk and, and get some more information for those that are interested. But be on the lookout to sign up for the Advocacy Summit virtually. So we're going to talk now about the AUA's priorities and, and the basically three categories of uh, issues that the advocacy uh, priorities fall into, the legislative priorities fall into. The first is access to care issues, and there's some different access to care issues that we'll, we'll talk about. Some of you may be familiar with some of these already as they affect a lot of uh, urology care overall. Uh, the second area is gonna be the uh, regulatory and uh, practice issues. And then the third area is going to be the uh, the workforce issues. We're going to talk about uh, some of the areas that a lot of us are familiar with, uh, starting with prostate cancer care for patients and survivors. There's just some different aspects to this, and I believe Quadrigos uh, is going to lead us on this. Yes? Sure. Thanks, Dr. Fallick. So we know that the AUA has been involved with regards to prostate cancer, um, starting off with the United States Preventive Services Task Force. And we, the AUA has had ongoing engagement with the task force starting since uh, 2012. I will not go into the details of uh, the United States Preventive Services Transparency and Accountability Act, which essentially calls for looking at critical reforms to the United States Preventive Services Task Force with regards to recommendations uh, with the screening of prostate cancer. Uh, but, but so with that, that has been just one piece of, of legislative work that we've been involved in. But since that time, we've also done uh, other aspects with regard to prostate cancer overall. In 2018, the AUA urged members of Congress to submit report language 
uh, and the House and the Senate Labor, Health and uh, Human Services Education Appropriations uh, Bill to let disparities with regards to prostate cancer among African-American men and other high at risk populations. Uh, certainly, we know that according to the NIH, the African-American men have higher incidences rates of prostate cancer in the United States, uh, more than twice as likely than uh, Caucasian men die of the disease. And so with that statistic, um, the AUA, given its longstanding um, advocacy for preserving men's access to appropriate prostate cancer screening and its tireless efforts to ensure that men and those at risk might be tested and screened for prostate cancer, we called for that ask, which suffice to say actually was included in the appropriate in the appropriations uh, report language. So that was a, a win for us. And that's one access issue with regard to prostate cancer that we have been working on. And most recently, uh, suffice to say, and, and proud to say that the AUA led um, a specific AUA bill with regard to prostate cancer, though more specifically within another high at risk category, and that being veterans. Uh, prostate cancer is number one in the leading cancer diagnosed within the Veterans Health Administration. Nearly 500,000 uh, prostate cancer patients are, are veterans within the system. In conjunction with uh, Representative Neil Dunn, who himself is a urologist and an AUA member of Congress representing the uh, 2nd District of Florida, and Joe Cunningham, a Democrat in South Carolina, District 1, who actually has one of the highest cases uh, country or highest, excuse me, one of the highest districts in the country of veterans, introduce uh, HR 69, HR 6092, excuse me, the Veterans Prostate Cancer Treatment and Research Act. And essentially what the act does is it creates a national prostate cancer clinical pathway within a year, calling for the bill. It develops a national prostate cancer care implementation program, and as well as uh, it designs a prostate cancer care registry and research program. So when we begin to really look at prostate cancer care for patients and survivors, you can see that the AUA has been longstanding on this issue and, and will continue to be. And right now, our focus uh, is on, of course, the at-risk populations, given the global pandemic of COVID-19, but also working to advance uh, the bill, H.R. 6092. Thanks, Q. That was a, a great summary. I think that um, you know, Robert can also attest to this, but prostate cancer care uh, has been one of the, the lead issues for the AUA since he and I have been involved in advocacy over the past uh, many years. And it's evolved quite a bit from, you know, initially addressing the uh, USPSTF uh, task force recommendation about PSA testing and, and that, uh, you know, that it didn't adequately address all populations. Uh, it's evolved into, you know, fighting for our patients' ability to get the kind of uh, treatments they need for any potential side effects from prostate cancer treatment. Uh, such as sexual dysfunction, and uh, and then moving on most recently, as Q just mentioned, to now uh, looking at ways that we can support our veterans uh, and provide them the, the prostate cancer care that they they need and deserve. So this has been you know something where the the AUA is really focused on this because as urologists we are the you know primary care providers of prostate cancer care uh, for men, and so we have to make sure that we have the ability to provide the appropriate and necessary care. And that's where the advocacy efforts have focused. Uh, Josh and Robert, anything else to add on that? Or 
So we. Can... I, th I think that that topic shows that how important it is for federal advocacy. Um, the, the U.S. Preventive Task Force, when it came out with its recommendation, you know, the, of not to screen prostate cancer anymore, you, we've seen the, the data, we've seen what's happened to our patients and the increased mortality that we're already seeing from that one committee coming out with the recommendation against PSA testing. And it's through the efforts of the AUA and other organizations that fought back for primarily with this legislation that forced the task force to reevaluate PSA testing and backtrack on their recommendations. Unfortunately, some of the damage has already been done. We're, we, you know, we're, we're going to be five, 10 years behind the ball trying to get these men screened again, but at least it, it shows you that our efforts have paid off and, and we're going back in the right direction as far as PSA testing is concerned. And, and as you mentioned, this is a, an, an area where it shows that, you know, we can make, we can make some changes uh, uh, appropriate changes that, that benefit our patients uh, with our advocacy work. So, uh, you know, we'll talk about that more later on as well, but there are a number of areas where, you know, specifically AUA advocacy efforts have, have made a difference. Uh, moving on to the next topic on access to care issues, fertility care for veterans. And this is an area that I've been particularly passionate. So just to summarize the issue, until 2016, if you were an active duty military personnel, and you had a service-related injury that impaired your ability to have children, uh, the, um, if you were active duty, you could remain active duty, you could have fertility coverage and fertility care provided under the Department of Defense. But if your injuries were so severe that you could no longer remain active duty, you then moved into the veterans system, and there was no provision until 2016 for any fertility care in the veterans system. So the patients that needed it the most, the patients that had the most severe injuries, were not able to have any kind of coverage for their service-related uh, injuries that caused fertility problems. In 2016, through some of the efforts that the AUA combined with some other organizations, uh, we were able to get fertility uh, care uh, provisions in the VA system and, and funding for that. But right now that, that, that funding is uh, as part of an appropriations bill, so it needs to be uh, continually renewed, otherwise it sunsets. And so we're looking to make a more permanent solution with legislation. And Josh, if you can add any comments on the, the legislation that's, that's going on now with that. I'd be glad to, Dr. Palak. Uh, so as mentioned, uh, you know, the AUA has been working on this issue for a while. Uh, it's actually sort of an offshoot of uh, you know, the work that the AUA did on uh, Eurotrauma or genitourinary Eurotrauma within uh, active duty service members uh, that you know, we were really successful on in redirecting the way that the DOD and the VA uh, treat those patients from time of incident all the way through uh, the, the lifetime of it. And so uh, you know, that's going back to uh, Dr. Bass's comment on why get involved. Uh, that whole issue started from one member uh, of the AUA who saw a, you know, a problem and wanted to fix it. Uh, but that really sort of spun up into this where you know, now we're working with organizations such as Resolve and the Association for American Society for Reproductive Medicine uh, on uh, legislation like the, uh, the Women's uh, Veterans and Family Health Services Act, uh, which would take those, those treatments that uh, Dr. Fallick is mentioning, uh, you know, IVF, uh, fertility treatments uh, for both the, the active duty service member veteran uh, or their spouse uh, and make them, them permanent. So instead of having to just continue to get those refunded every year uh, within the appropriation cycle, 
uh, you know, legislation like that would solidify that change. And so, you know, those are those are the continued fights, uh, you know, as we see issues change and morph that, you know, we like to push forward and, um, you know, we try not to work in a vacuum uh, as we do these things. Josh, I think you were going to talk more about the uh, the research and patient advocacy and bladder health issues. So uh, those issues uh, right now, the way the AOE is tackling them, they're all kind of in a bundle together uh, a lot because a lot of it falls under the work that we're doing uh, to ensure funding for the National Health Institutes, uh, so everything that falls under there, as well as a lot of the research that's being done by the Department of Defense under their uh, congressionally directed uh, medical research project. So that's that's a big chunk of money where you know we tend to see um, a lot of funding for different research projects related to bladder cancer, uh, kidney cancer, prostate cancer research. A lot of it being done within the DoD. Uh, you know, so. AUA tends to advocate every year through that appropriation cycle uh, to not only see continued funding for those programs, but a lot of time uh, increased funding. Uh, so as, a, as an example, uh, you know, with the work that we were trying to get through this year's appropriation cycle for the NIH, uh, you know, we're requesting that Congress put roughly $45 billion towards NIH research, uh, which would be roughly $3 billion over what it did in the previous fiscal year. And, you know, while that might say, you know, how much that money is really going to, you know, to bladder cancer or you know, related research projects, uh, a good chunk of that really does kind of get brought down uh, into the urologic space due to continued efforts by the AUA. Uh, we have colleagues on our side, uh, Jessica Bateman and uh, Kimberly Sirota, that really focus on that patient research advocacy aspect and you know, help to get as much funding um, out of that $44 billion into urology care. Uh, so those are the, the current fights that we're doing right now. Uh, it's it's an interesting process because the appropriation cycle, uh, you know, it, it has its waves and it kind of follows a very set path every year. But this year is a little different uh, as it is with everything. It, it's been kind of pushed off and, you know, the, the normal fights that we would try to make there, I wouldn't say it's stumbling blocks, but it's interesting because no, I mean, with the 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 no longer face to face aspect of Congress, it, it's it's made making a lot of those requests uh, a little more difficult. But it, it's still it's an ongoing fight that the AUA will continue for. Thanks, Josh. The uh, regulatory and practice issues; these are the kind of things that uh, affect all of us, regardless of what type of practice we're in, in terms of how we're able to provide care for our patients and. Uh, going to group those sort of into three uh, categories, the regulatory burdens and prior authorization, uh, medical liability, and then the in-office ancillary service exception. Who wants to take on the, the first first topic, the regulatory burdens and prior authorizations and we're, what we're focusing on with that? When we look again from a legislative perspective, H.R. 3107, which is the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act, uh, is a significant milestone, and it's bipartisan uh, directly out of the gate. So there, there are two Democrats and two Republicans, one who's a physician. And this legislation really would protect uh, America's seniors because it's specifically within the Medicare Advantage program from unnecessary delays as it relates to streamlining and standardizing uh, prior authorization process. I mean, we all know, of course, about the, the burdens really when it comes to access to care and that physicians have to go through the, the timeliness and some 
offices, uh, particularly with regard to smaller, uh, you know, royal rural urologic practices may not be able to have the staff really to put through a lot of uh, prior authorization requests. And so uh, this specific legislation, again, HR 3107, really gets to the issue of prior authorization. Currently, the bill has about 225 co-sponsors, which is it was a good thing. And I should also say that the AUA is working in tandem and in collaboration with a wide variety of other patient um, provider organizations. So ophthalmology, dermatology, neurology, or cardiology, just to name a few, we're also working in tandem with this bill as well. Thanks, Hugh. Yeah, I was going to mention that the uh, the AUA does work in conjunction with other specialties and other uh, physician providers. And one way we do that is with the Alliance for Specialty Medicine, where some of these issues of prior authorization and step therapy requirements are being addressed uh, both from a, a legislative standpoint and hoping to get bills passed to uh, address some of these barriers to providing easy, good patient care. And then we have the medical liability issue, which uh, we know is both a, a state level and a federal level issue. Sure, happy to. Just to, to piggyback on, on your note of working with other physician groups, uh, we work also with other physician groups to address liability reform, uh, particularly relating to now COVID-19, of course. So there's been a recent bill that has been introduced by Congress uh, by Representative Dr. Phil Rowe, who is a friend of the AUA, of the Coronavirus Provider Protection Act. Again, Coronavirus Provider Protection Act. Try saying that three times fast, which is HR 7059. Really, this legislation seeks to provide uh, healthcare providers with protections uh, from unforced and unfounded lawsuit, um, joined by other stakeholders in calling on Congress to pass legislation that really safeguards medical professionals and facilities in which they practice um, COVID-19 specific and related medical liability lawsuits. Uh, so to this end, it is also bipartisan and it provides uh, relief from the threat of, of these lawsuits. And the bill also provides, I think, critical language that can, when we're trying to get introduced, and when I say we, again, I'm talking about the coalition, trying to get it introduced um, and considered by the Senate Health Committee as well, because right now it's only in the House. And, and I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's a good point that you made that, you know, the, these are issues that, that the AUA has been looking at for years in, in various different ways. And yet, you know, we have a, a, um, a situation, you know, that comes up like the, the COVID-19 situation and all of a sudden our work on medical liability is in that, you know, providers are being put in situations where they're, um, you know, not being able to give the kind of care that they would like to be able to give for various different reasons or being asked to give care in, in other areas. And so um, having some liability protection for that is is important and uh, something that the AUA has been working hard on for years and, and now in this realm, uh, specifically this year with the COVID situation. Robert, do you want to talk at all about the uh, in-office ancillary services exception and, and some of the reasons and issues regarding that and how we're working on that? Sure. So, you know, this is an example of how, you know, we've had to adapt over time. When I first started getting involved in advocacy, our fight for in-office ancillary exception was to keep uh, in-office imaging, such as CT scans, transrectal ultrasounds, and, and other uh, procedures that we do in our office as an exception to the Stark rules. Um, and that has now since morphed into a, a different area of advocacy. In fact, in the way that the 
passage of the Affordable Care Act and then some of the subsequent legislation repealing SGR, we found ourselves as organizations trying to come up with new models for caring for patients. And in, in, in doing so, also coming up with alternate methods of payment uh, for that care. Well, the, the barriers we've run into is that the stark rules are limiting us in our ability to adapt with these new pieces of legislation. So now our advocacy efforts are focused on trying to get Congress to readjust how Stark is enforced and, and how those those laws will affect us so that we can implement some of these changes that are needed for these, these new payment models. Um, I don't know if you guys have any more specifics as far as what may be going on in the legislators for, but that's that's where we are as far as the exceptions are concerned. Yeah, and, and for those that, that, that haven't been involved in advocacy, um, you know, just to summarize, the Stark regulations re require certain situations or certain rules to be in place uh, in order to be able to provide certain types of care in your practice. And uh, that's called the in-office ancillary services exception, which allows um, urologists who meet certain requirements to provide certain types of uh, care that um, can, you know, more easily coordinate or facilitate a patient's access to certain types of, of evaluation and or treatment. Uh, and uh, over the years, as Robert mentioned, uh, the way that we've addressed this has adapted, but uh, certainly the, the main issue right now are some of the burdens that prevent us from being involved in some of the alternative payment models and some of the other structures that are encouraged with the legislation uh, that, that came through under the Affordable Care Act, but because of some of the regulations may be difficult for us to actually do. All right, and really just to add on, um, you know, over time, there's been bills introduced to to eliminate the in-office ancillary services from start, from the Stark Law. Um, you know, there it's an ongoing effort, and so um, one bill, particularly the Medicare the Medicare Care Coordination Improvement Act, uh, which is both in the House and the Senate, uh, would provide uh, CMS with the same sort of authority to waive uh, the prohibitions in Stark Law for physicians seeking to develop and operating. APMs uh, provided by ACOs. And so we continue, it's a very complicated issue, but we continue to, to work on uh, that fight. It's, it's not, if I can say, a, a sexy topic when it comes to advocating in Congress and, and very few Hill staffers actually get it, but it's an issue that we continue to address and we continue to highlight. Thanks, Q. We're going to move on now to the third area of categories of topics that we're working on from an advocacy standpoint, and that has to do with uh, workforce issues. And under the workforce issue, we also have some different uh, topics, the, the workforce shortage, um, as well as graduate medical education and physician burnout. And just to, to start off this, this category, um, we, we've heard over the years that urologists are the uh, second oldest specialty uh, after thoracic surgeons, I believe and that the number of urologists that are retiring each year uh, is exceeding the number that are coming out of training programs. And so uh, making sure that we have adequate uh, urologists to provide the care and to sustain our, our practices is important. So um, Josh, I think you were gonna uh, add on some information about this as well. Uh, yes, sir, Dr. Fallick. Uh, so kind of working from uh, the back on this one a little bit, uh, physician burnout is kind of an interesting issue because it, it while it directly affects the workforce, uh, a lot of the the causes, drivers, which I believe you know, 
you and Dr. Bass could probably easily speak to. Uh, you touched on a lot of the issues that we've already sort of mentioned, you know, a lot of the regulatory things, uh, the paperwork, the burdens that go with that, uh, you know, tend to feed into it, as well as you uh, the long hours that a lot of physicians have to work, you know, particularly surgeons, particularly right now. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting touch all sort of thing that uh, you know, really affects you know, every aspect. Uh, but when it comes to you know, sort of looking at it and where it falls in, uh, you know, this is, this is sort of the bucket that it, it more directly represents. Uh, but as far as, as the workforce itself is concerned, as you mentioned, Dr. Fallick, you know, uh, urology is the, it's the second oldest surgical subspecialty. Uh, you know, it's what I think as limited numbers as we have, you know, we're looking at roughly two thirds of all U.S. counties that don't roughly that don't have a practicing urologist. So it's it's an issue that you know, is really ongoing. You know, we're, we're seeing um, you know, a lot of people age into retirement, both in the urologic space uh, as well as uh, in the you know, public sector as well in the you know, general population. So you know, while we're losing those urologists and we're not really bringing them in uh, due to the fact that you know residency caps uh, have been. Uh, maintained at the same level since 1997. You know, we're we're just seeing sort of a, a widening gap between the number of practicing physicians uh, and the number of patients that they need to need to see. Uh, so one of the things that the AUA has been working on, uh, in conjunction with a lot of other uh, you know, specialty organizations, uh, the House of Medicine, kind of as a whole, uh, really on this one, uh, is the Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act. Uh, it's introduced in both the House uh, and the Senate. It tends to get reintroduced fairly regularly. Uh, just due to the fact that, you know, addressing this issue has a very large price tag associated with it. So uh, it's one of those issues that Congress is is uh, reluctant to pick up just because of the fact that it is so expensive. Uh, but what it would do is it would create, you know, 1,500 new uh, residency positions uh, funded by Medicare, which is where the majority of residency positions are supposed to be funded uh, a year for the next uh, five fiscal years. So, uh, no, I'm sorry, I correct that. It would be 3,000 new positions. 1,500 of those positions are supposed to go to uh, specialties that are within need, um, specialties like urology that have been identified as an at-need specialty. So 3,000 new positions a year under Medicare for the next five years for a total of 15,000 new positions, and half of which would go to uh, at-need specialties. Thanks, Josh. I think that's an important point is that, you know, with the discussion about uh, graduate medical education funding and, and workforce issues uh, in general, there's been a lot of focus on primary care uh, providers and, and, and inadequate numbers of primary care providers. But what the AUA has been working hard to make everyone aware of is that uh, it's not just primary care providers where there are workforce issues and where there needs to be more funding for graduate medical education. And that specialists, uh, uh, you know, serve an important role as well and 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 are also dealing with some of these shortages. Uh, and as the as you mentioned, the bill provides that uh, half of the funding uh, for graduate medical education will be going specifically towards specialties where there may be a workforce shortage issue or a lack of adequate training numbers coming out. Yes, sir. Um, and to sort of touch on a little bit more as to what you, know, you said, with a lot of the conversation being focused uh, within the workforce shortage on primary care, uh, that actually brought the AUA to its next piece of legislation within the workforce space uh, you know, that we have been championing uh, most recently. 
Uh, and it's a bill that would create a student loan forgiveness program for specialty positions that choose to practice in a rural setting. Uh, you know, a program like this uh, doesn't currently exist for specialty physicians. Uh, I'm sure uh, many of the listeners that are uh, you know, uh, residents or fellows might be familiar with the National Health Service Corps uh, you know, and, and the work that it does to help drive physicians to um, both rural and uh, underserved uh, urban areas. Uh, the problem with that program is that it is only geared towards primary care physicians. Uh, you know, and it, it actually defines that very narrowly. So you, some groups that would normally be considered primary care, such as OBGYN, do not have access to that. Uh, so the AUA has actually worked with uh, Congressman Peter Welch, as well as Congressman David McKinley uh, from West Virginia, who is taking the lead on this bill, uh, to introduce legislation that would create a, a program for student loan forgiveness here directly at specialty physicians. Uh, it would pay back a total of $250,000 uh, for uh, a physician student loan debt if they choose to practice in a rural setting. Uh, the general program would roll off uh, a sixth of that payment uh, one year for every six years that somebody is within that program. So it's just one of those things that um, while it would not fix all of the workforce problems, uh, it definitely won't fix all of the distribution issues across the country. Uh, it's just one of those things that you know, we saw a targeted area that needed to be addressed and have moved forward with you know, trying to get it addressed. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I think that's uh, you know, a nice summary of, of that, Josh. And, and you know, what, it, what it demonstrates and what you're hearing throughout the, the, the conversation tonight is that, um, that you know, the combination of uh, urologists being involved, like, like Dr. Bass, like me, but we have a, a, with the AUA a very strong uh, office presence in Washington D.C. with some very knowledgeable, uh, you know, staff that really are are making connections on the Hill with government and with with our representatives and with their staff and really, you know, knowledgeable about what's going on and 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 what's important to us. So, uh, you know, I commend uh, you know Josh and, and Quadrigos for your work and and the rest of the Washington D.C. office for a really. Um, you know, speaking on behalf of urologists, so so thank you guys, and talk about you know how we how we make a difference, why we make a difference, and I think that um, as Robert you know attested to earlier on, and and you know as I may have said, uh, this is not a you know one time you know address an issue and and then walk away. These are efforts that need to be on a continuing basis. They need to be uh, repeated. They need to be part of relationships that we build with. Our representatives and and with uh, people on the hill that are our friends, uh, you know, I think Quadricos was the one that mentioned, you know, Dr. Rowe, who's a, a congressman, a former, uh, you know, former practicing physician, and very in tune to a lot of these issues. And over the years, we've really been able to develop support and and relationships with, uh, you know, with different different people in Congress, different people in Washington on the hill. Uh, that have really uh, made a big difference. I think you can look at some of the successes that we've had over the years, and some of them are actual bills that have passed, and some of them are uh, just uh, you know areas where we've been able to accomplish what we want. And years back, one of the issues that was very important to the AUA was was funding for Eurotrauma. Uh, there was a lot of uh, new new type of uh, war related injuries that were creating pelvic injuries and creating reproductive and and urinary uh, injuries. And so Eurotrauma became a big focus of the AUA. And through some of the efforts of, uh, of those of us that you know were involved in advocacy, 
the Euro trauma uh, funding uh, did get passed. Um, Josh or Q, can you give any specifics on the on the Euro trauma progress that we made? Be glad to. Uh, you know that that's an issue that uh, I got to work on you know, fairly early as I joined the AUA, uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know that was something that was uh, it was identified by a, a urologist AUA member, uh, Dr. Mark Edney, who observed in uh, Mosul, Iraq, and you know he. He witnessed a, a lot of you know, the, the genital urinary trauma that was coming out uh, from the, the war fighters and he saw that they weren't really being treated properly because a lot of the, you know, the, the on-field surgeons just weren't as aware. Uh, they weren't trained uh, in that urologic perspective, so they weren't aware of a lot of the treatments that they could do to help preserve uh, function, um, form, you know, and really make sure that you know, people that are young serving in war aren't you know, coming back with uh, infertility issues, incontinence issues, you know, the whole host of other things that are affected by that. Uh, and so that was something that, you know, due to his experience, you know, he brought to the AUA, we were able to get him involved, bring him to Capitol Hill. Uh, and a lot of it was kind of that, because we worked on it for so long, right time, right situation, uh, where we were in a meeting with a former member of Congress who was also a practicing physician before they came to Congress and chaired the um, House VA committee, heard about the issue and you know, really took interest into it. He heard about the bill, looked at the bill, decided to hold a hearing surrounding you know, that general treatment itself. Uh, and then he championed our issue on our behalf, uh, getting it involved into the uh, the 2016 uh, National Defense Authorization Act, where it forced both the DOD and the VA to really address that issue and look at it uh, based off of you know, financial spendings, how it's affecting you know, that patient base uh, from you know, initial injury through its life form. And you know, that, uh, that's the win that you know, the AUA has been able to tell since then because you know, one urologist really wanted to address that issue and we were able to get them involved. And so it took multiple years, it took multiple tries and multiple meetings it's one of those things that if you keep putting in the effort, eventually you're going to be there. Yeah, that's great. And, and I think that the, there are some other examples of that where over the years we've, we've worked on something and, and, you know, and, and in the end, our efforts paid off. Uh, another example uh, was repeal of the sustainable growth rate, which was a significant advocacy priority for the AUA for many years. And uh, you know, we were able to get get that accomplished. Um, other areas that we worked on that have been successful um, and some of them come in, in some ways as part of a surprise. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we didn't expect it to happen, but it happens. The, the repeal of the um, IPAB or independent, independent Payment Advisory Board, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, which was really uh, a difficult um, uh, situation for, for most physicians to accept uh, how IPAB worked. And we worked against, uh, you know, getting that repealed. And then all of a sudden, you know, you know we weren't expecting it to happen, but, but that came through. Um, we talked about the, you know, fertility coverage for veterans, which again is not a permanent solution, but we've been able to accomplish that. And then earlier in the talk, talked about how we, uh, you know, were able to make some uh, success and, and connections with the United States Preventative Services Task Force, and and you know, some progress in getting the, the D grade of PSA testing changed to a C grade over the years, and and continuing efforts on that as well. Uh, you know, I'm going to give my perspective on why you should get involved. And you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but you know, you can make a difference. You can make a difference 
um, for yourself. You can make a difference for your practice, but most importantly, you can make a difference for your patients and, and the care that they're able to get and the way you're able to provide that care. And I think that that's really a significant um, uh, accomplishment uh, that, that advocacy allows you to do. The other reason I think that's important to get involved in advocacy is that it, it's a nice antidote to, to burnout. And I've heard this from some of the other uh, urologists that also are involved in advocacy as well. A lot of physicians are facing, you know, uh, the, the burnout issue, the pressure issue, um, and and uh, the the ability to be involved in advocacy and to to speak your voice and to and to accomplish things really gives some some uh, you know way to sort of counteract some of the burnout that we may be facing in our in our practices and our day to day routines. So let's talk about the ways that uh, people can get involved in advocacy because there's a few different uh, aspects to that. And the first is uh, we talked about already, but it's the the annual uh, urology advocacy summit. This is a really great way to be involved in advocacy to uh, address some of these issues that we've been talking about. And this year, like we mentioned earlier, the advocacy summit's gonna be uh, changing somewhat in its format. Uh, we usually have an in-person meeting in Washington, D.C., which is really exciting. But we're gonna be having this virtually, which hopefully will mean that urologists that aren't able to travel to Washington, as well as those that we're planning to, are able to participate. There are gonna be some keynote speakers, just like there were planning to be for the, for the live session. There are gonna be some uh, topics that are going to be primarily related to, uh, to COVID-19 and a lot of the work that's being done from a health policy standpoint on COVID-19. Uh, and there was a question that came up, which uh, um, uh, we'll address a little bit more later on, but in terms of the, the telehealth aspects of COVID-19 and some of the work that we're doing to try to preserve some of the uh, aspects that have that have occurred. Uh, but the website is www.auasummit.org and it's uh, easy to register, easy to sign up. And the nice part about it is it's gonna be mostly evening so that those urologists that are practicing are still gonna be able to participate without having to give up uh, too much of their practice time. Uh, there is on, on Tuesday, the, uh, the planned Hill visits and, and Josh and Q, if you guys wanna expand on that at all. Sure, so Dr. Fowler, I think you really summed it up quite nicely, but uh, September 1st will be the virtual Hill visits. Um, uh, most of them will be via teleconference. Some, very few will be uh, video conference. It really is contingent upon the office, but it's a, a, absolutely a great way to have a conversation either with your member of Congress or with uh, the staffer. And we know, of course, uh, that the staffers really are the eyes and the ears and, and, and really are in the rooms and conversations with regard to their members uh, drafting and talking about legislation and who gets on certain bills. So it's a really a great way to, to get involved for those who would like to sign up for the summit. And even when we do meet face-to-face, -face, which hopefully will be uh, 2021, where again, you at least get to meet your member of Congress face-to-face -face and, and really see how the legislative congressional process works. Everyone should sign up for the summit and uh, it, uh, it will be a, a very interesting and uh, timely discussion about a lot of these topics and uh, and and certainly how we're responding to the to the COVID-19 and situation and, and the impact that's having on our practices as well. Another way that you can get involved is to uh, to respond. Josh or Q, you want to talk about the grassroots alerts at all? So actually a lot of the uh, the issues and bills that we spoke about uh, this evening, um, I think there's a question into getting you know, how can we continue to push this along? Uh, I think in reference to the the VA prostate cancer bill, uh, that 
have a, a grassroots alert tied into it. So it's a system that the AUA utilizes where you, just by putting in some very brief information, uh, email, your home address, so that way it knows which member of Congress to, to contact. You can quickly send a pre-typed out message that you have the chance to edit, add any additional information you feel is important uh, to your member of Congress, uh, your senators, uh, if it's a state-related issue, they have that option to send it to your state legislatures. Uh, and it's all tied in to where you can even tweet out to your members if you have a Twitter account. Uh, it'll, again, pre-populate that information. Uh, or if you want to, to make some edits to make it a little bit more unique or make it your own, you know, that information is there as well. Uh, and it's totally free. It's an easy way just to sort of send a quick message to your member of Congress. Hey, this is important to me. You know, please look at this bill. It has all of the uh, pertinent information there. Uh, all it's missing is you know the, the physician's direct you know experience with it. This is how it affects my patient base. Uh, you know, this is how it's affected me within my practice. You know, that sort of thing. Um, ready to go, lined up for you. Just go to auanet.org/act now. And you can do it from your phone too, so you don't have to do it from you know just your PC. Uh, if you have your your tablet or your mobile with you, you can do it from there as well. Fully integrated. Great, thanks, Josh. That's a nice summary. Has uh, um, you know been an important part of the AUA's advocacy efforts. Uh, PACs are are important ways that we can uh, connect, and um, it's an important aspect of the advocacy. There's going to be a whole separate uh, webinar about the AUA PAC. I believe it's on August 25th. Uh, led by uh, Dr. Thomas Rakshoffen, who's the uh, current head of the AUA PAC, and I encourage you all to join uh, that uh, that webinar as well. Uh, but you can go on the website, which is, I believe, on the next slide, www.myauapac.org, and uh, contribute to the AUA PAC, where we can uh, continue other uh, efforts uh, to connect on Capitol Hill in Washington. Josh or Q, unless you guys have anything else to add on the pack, I'm just going to move. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to address some of the questions that have come in in the chat box. The first one was um, uh, talking points about the VA prostate cancer uh, bill. And Quadricos, I think you're probably the best person to, to address this and, and where um, um, AUA members can get more information on this issue. Sure. So I think Josh highlighted perfectly regards to the grassroots alerts. Uh, that's a that's a way to to get really information about the bill. Uh, but also, if you you contact me or um, the legislative and political affairs email address that we can provide, uh, certainly I can give you further details as outlined for the bill with regards to the clinical pathway, the prostate cancer care implementation program, and the patient patient registry. That all is outlined in the bill. Thanks, Q. There was a question about uh, uh, coordinating advocacy efforts um, regarding the uh, tele telehealth uh, provisions that have been allowed during the COVID-19 situation and um, how we're working from a legislative standpoint to try to uh, retain some of those provisions. Uh, the AOA is actually addressing that issue on multiple fronts. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, you know, a few weeks back, or actually a few months back, we started collecting you know, individual stories and experiences uh, from physicians. Dr. Falick, I think you actually helped to contribute to some of those, uh, really kind of targeting uh, experiences on the ground uh, with telehealth, how that's allowed a lot of the physicians, uh, particularly for services that weren't being allowed at the time, to continue to keep their practices open. 
Uh, we've shared those stories with Congress. We continue to do that. We continue to collect those. So any information that people want to share, uh, you know, as as Q said, you know, please feel free to email us. It's uh, qdriscoll at auanet.org for those that are interested. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we would really collect any of those stories. We love to share them with Congress uh, on your behalf and make any connections that we can. Uh, as far as you know, greater coordination is concerned. Uh, you know, Dr. Falk, you've already mentioned the uh, Alliance of Specialty Medicine. That's an organization that you know, we're working very closely with to uh, push the committees of jurisdiction, uh, which in both the House and the Senate, which would be Ways and Means, Energy and Commerce, and then Senate Finance and Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions on you know, really addressing those issues, holding hearings, uh, you know, making sure that legislation can get introduced that would uh, you know, extend you know, those telehealth provisions past the the pandemic and past the uh, national health emergency that's been established. Yeah, and this is an area that you know we've had to 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 pivot on pretty quickly because although the AUA has been focusing on telemedicine telehealth quite a bit and really has been on the forefront of advocating for the ability to provide telehealth care, um, you know certainly the COVID nineteen situation has has changed quite a bit of how we do things and uh, definitely become a focus for us. And then I think it's the, the last uh, question is, uh, the pandemic has further exposed previously known health disparities for men and uh, the Office of Men's Health was one of the uh, priorities that the AUA has been working on. And, and are there any updates on that? Uh, that's a great question. I'm actually having a conversation with Representative Donald Payne's office uh, the first week in August with regard to not only the VA bill, but re with regard to men's health, holistically speaking. So I hope to have uh, further updates with regard to the Office of Men's Health. And just going back to the telemedicine question really quickly, uh, because it is important for our, our members, uh, I should note that telemedicine would also be a congressional ask during the summit as well. And Josh already graciously gave you all my email address. Uh, so, but I do think there's an overall arching uh, legislative and political affairs email address as well to which we can provide too. So unless there are any other questions, I think we're, uh, we're at our time here to wrap up. I wanna thank uh, those that attended and, and joined this session. I hope that we provided some good insight into some of the uh, issues that were trying to address through the AUA's uh, Legislative Affairs Committee and through our Washington, D.C. staff. I want to thank uh, Dr. Bass for his input and, and certainly Josh and Quadricos and, and the rest of the staff in Washington, D.C. for all their great hard work. And uh, uh, thanks, guys, for providing some, some real good insight on some of the details on uh, what we're working on. So keep up the good work and uh, looking forward to seeing everyone as part of the uh, Advocacy Summit at the end of the uh, end of the summer. Uh, please sign up for that and, and join. I think you'll find it really uh, worthwhile. So thanks again and, and have a good night. Stay safe, everyone. Be well. Thank you for listening to the AUA Inside Track podcast, an official podcast of the American Urological Association.